Hi, welcome back to another episode of 24-Hour Video. I'm your host, Jason Green. My guest on today's show is filmmaker, author, photographer, and the first guest on my podcast that has directed a legitimate opera, true film royalty, Bruce LaBruce. I would guess many of my listeners are familiar with Bruce's work, but for those who aren't, well, I'm excited for you, first of all. And here's a little bit about Bruce and how I came to know his work. Before Bruce became the Bruce LaBruce, he was a punk legend in Toronto, Canada. He, alongside G.B. Jones from the incredible band Fifth Column, released a hugely influential fanzine called the JDs. I don't want to lay it on too thick here, but that zine and that scene at the time were largely responsible for queercore as a genre and how we know it today. Bruce's first film, which I'll let him tell you more about in our interview, is called No Skin Off My Ass, and it's a queer reworking of a sort of lesser-known Robert Altman film, at least in the States, called Cold Day in the Park. No Skin Off My Ass is about a hairdresser, played by Bruce, and his obsession with a mute Nazi skinhead. So that might give you an idea about Bruce's vibe. His films, more often than not, include a traditional genre narrative, often based off of a classic Hollywood film that you'd never suspect, and subverting them. Most of the films include actual sex, but they still have really beautifully written plots and dialogue, making them the types of films that have befuddled critics and, and viewers to this day. I first came to know him from when I was working as a clerk at a video store in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and I had seen the box for Hustler White, which I think really brought him into the zeitgeist more here in the States. Although, I don't know, it could just be my perception based on my age. I don't know. It was the first one I saw in the shop. But Raspberry Reich, that was my first Bruce LeBruce viewing experience. It blended two of my loves, revolutionary terrorist organizations like the Weather Underground and Batter Meinhof, and, you know, fucking. <laughs> With characters declaring that Madonna is counter-revolutionary and heterosexuality is the opiate of the masses, I was so into it. I can't understate how funny these movies are as well. And he's the master of the tagline. For his film, L.A. Zombie, the tagline is, first he eats your brain, then he eats your ass. 
I mean, that's very good copywriting. He has made subversive, funny, and beautiful work over multiple decades, which is fucking tough. And there's never been a moment of compromise here. It's truly impressive. Most interviews with Bruce focus on the transgressive nature of his films, the porn, etc. I wanted to pick his brain about his influences more, and they consist of multitudes. His film knowledge is very deep and very passionate, and it was a blast to see how these older films connected directly to his work. There are a lot of good recommendations here, so get a pen or pencil ready. And this interview was done right before last year's Oscars. So that's where the conversation starts. Uh, I hope you love it. Enjoy my interview with Bruce the Bruce. Oh, and one more thing before we start. I would be remiss not to let you know that Bruce's new film, St. Narcisse, is now available everywhere. Streaming platforms, digital, the whole nine yards. It's, I think, his most accomplished work yet. It is beautiful. It's funny. Uh, and if you've never seen one of his films, honestly, this isn't a bad place to start. So check it out and enjoy the interview. 24-hour video. Uh, what's the last film that you've watched? I'm in the middle of Minari. Oh, yeah? What do you think? Boring. <laughs> <laughs> Do you <laughs> do you feel obligated? No, I mean, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I just, I mean, um, it has all the like trappings of an Oscar bait movie, but none of the kind of like um, sort of uh, bombastic overkill. It's like so understated, right? That I mean, I actually I have to agree with Richard Brody's review in the New Yorker, um, where it's strangely like. The characters are strangely muted and when the camera isn't on you almost can't imagine what their lives are like like off off screen off camera i mean mm -hmm. it's such a limited view of the characters um yeah i don't know i'm not buying it and and before that it was another uh oh promising young woman Ugh, so terrible <laughs> Yeah, I have to agree with you on that one. <laughs> I, I mean, I could go, I could go into why, but I mean, go into why, really? Go into why? Well, well, really, because uh, it's like um, this idea of cutting off your nose to spite your face. You know, it's like there, there's like the empowerment comes from after like extreme victimization and kind of. Um, and martyrdom but i mean you know i love you know there's some the the, the great rape revenge movies uh, i would think are the ones that are cathartic you know it's like uh, where you really rip somebody's balls off or something you know it's like um so i know this one is also like very understated and uh but her character just seemed like so defeated from the beginning and and the um the kind of redemption, uh, the the kind of revenge that she gets at the end is is, you know, quite a pirate victory. I mean, you know, it's like yeah. it's um, revenge from beyond the grave isn't that satisfying, really? Do you have do you have some favorite rape revenge films? Well, I was I should have looked up the name. There was this Australian movie that came out um, 
in the uh, I think it was in the eighties. But of course, you know, I Revenge I like much better um, the 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 recent one, yeah. And and, uh, let's see what else. Um, Like I spit on your grave or Miss Forty Five. Those uh, Miss Forty Five is great, yeah, of course. Uh, um, uh, Extremities, even. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. Flo- uh, Farrah Fawcett. I mean, even though it's a bit of a pot boiler, uh, it's um, even like Lipstick. I mean, it's, you know, it's a B movie, but mm-hmm. um, it, it certainly gives you that um, that satisfaction of like blowing somebody's, you know, <laughs> cock off. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Do you uh, do you feel obligated to kind of watch all the Oscar uh, nominations? Not so much this year. Just I guess because of the dynamics of everything. I mean, yeah. n- normally I'd probably go to the theater and watch them. Um, yeah. I'm just doing it this week, just to kind of like so I have a a, a kind of um, idea of what's going on. Uh, but I haven't seen many of them, uh, to be honest. So yeah, I'm in a similar boat. Um, I keep trying to, but but I mean, you know, the the Oscar bait movies are have become worse and worse, and the the films that they always pick, I I usually hate, like <laughs> like Shape of Water. Oh my god, oh god. the worst. <laughs> Crash, I think, might be one of the all time. Yeah, I guess I think there's even worse than it though. I mean, like, um, uh, oh well, La La Land. Oh, it oh, lost. Man. Oh, it lost. Oh, good. Oh, thank God it lost. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's uh, so? So, what's your pandemic? I know you guys have been you're, you guys have been hit really hard up in Toronto. Um, oh, it's awful. Um, yeah. What's your pandemic viewing habits been like? Um. Hmm. Well, I tried. Uh, early on, not to get sucked into um, into watching too many TV series mm-hmm. because I just find it's a black hole. And um, you know, if once you start binging series after series, it just takes up all your time. I mean, I really don't know how people do it. I mean, how people keep the the problem is like fifty percent of the population is now either in the entertainment industry or a, a reviewer of products from the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's no real people anymore except a few like construction workers. So um, uh, it, there's just way too much product and way too many series. And even series that I like, um, you know, I might stop watching after two or three seasons just because it's like, I get it, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I enjoy it, but um I, I don't necessarily have to slog through like the whole thing. Um, uh, you know, back in the day when a genius, you know, TV show like Kojak or something was on, then you would, you'd, you'd miss an episode. Um, you only had two chances. You had to watch the original broadcast or they repeated it once, like in the summer or something. Mm-hmm. And so, but you know, life took priority so you might miss like a couple episodes or here and there and um 
and then that was fine and then you go on and uh, you go back and, and watch an episode after missing several episodes and um and it was fine i mean they were those i mean kojak those were like they made a 35 millimeter movie like every yeah. every week i mean yeah. it was insane it was like a real movie um but um so you know i i i resisted for a long time to even watch tv series and then uh breaking bad did me in like mm-hmm. i broke down way back um Broken Bad had just finished and everyone was just, you couldn't like avoid it. Everyone was talking about it all the time. So I binged the whole series and that really like broke the floodgates and, uh, and I started binging like a lot of really great series and, and um, like, you know, like everything from Fargo to, um, to you name it. I, uh, I mean, some of them I, I didn't, uh watch or like but other ones i really got into uh i mean um house of cards oh my god the first two uh um seasons of house of cards are are amongst my favorite of Mm -hmm. like certainly a modern tv series anyway so i i instead i started uh watching a lot of turner classic movie movies great which is my which is my favorite channel and uh it's like this insane archive of the history of cinema and it's commercial free and it's just insanely great so um uh i would watch a lot of that they had a kurosawa festival kind of on early on in the pandemic so i watched like what what is it what's this where are you watching it channel you said yeah turner classic movies oh turner classic oh of course yeah 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 tcm yeah the best okay yeah. So, and then I started, you know, and then once I, if I get into a director like that, then I'll go on to my laptop and continue watching, you know, more obscure movies. I mean, I did take a Japanese cinema course in, in university with uh, my mentor, the great Robin Wood. And, and um, but I'm, re- and now I'm reinvestigating Ozu as well. Um, mm. So the, yeah, TCM is great too, but, I uh, you can also have I have the bad habit of rewatching movies over and over again, which probably you shouldn't do either because um, because there's so many great movies that you've never seen to watch. But uh, you know sometimes you have watched a great movie like 30 years ago and you bear you yeah might not you might not remember it. So sometimes watching it again is almost like watching it again for the first time. But um, yeah, so that's. Uh, so I do that, and then um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll go on little little mini binges, like either director or star. Like I watched watched a whole um, ton of Dirk Bogart movies. Mm, I uh, was actually going to ask you about Dirk Bogart. Yeah, did they did T- TCM did a series on him? Yeah, yeah, they they were showing like one of uh, like um well they did a highlight on him, and yeah, then they were showing a lot of his movies intermittently. What's your, um, do you have a kind of a go-to Dirk Bogard film you, or a period? Do you like the, the stuff he did with Losi? What's the sort of, your, your kind of favorite Bogard? I'm really all over, uh, uh, yeah. it's, I can really watch almost anything by it, sure. that he's in, you know? Sure. So, so I like, I can even watch, you know, those doctor movies he was in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but then, 
you know, I, I love the singer, not the song. I love, uh, I watched recently a movie I had never seen before uh, with him and Ava Gardner, the woman in the red dress that's set during the Spanish Civil War that's amazing. The two of them oh, wow. together are, are stunning. Um, you know, he, he did, uh, um, and of course, yeah, of course, the Losey films and, and also Victim. Um, and then the later ones I love, um, I love Despair. I love yeah. um, uh, uh, Daddy Nostalgia, the, 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 uh, the uh, Bert, Bertrand Tavernier film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of course, Night Porter, I watched again recently. Just incredible, incredible. Ma- yeah. masterpiece. Uh, so, yeah, any era. What is it about him, do you think? What's, what is appealing uh, about him as a performer for you? I don't know. Like my favorite actors, really, screen actors uh, are like Dirk Bogart, Martello Mastrioni, mm-hmm. uh, Tashiro Mifune, mm-hmm. um, and Lawrence Harvey, and um, say uh, uh, Melvin Douglas. Oh. So what do they have in common? They're like... Um, not, not so much Mufuni, but they're they're kind of like very um, intelligent, kind of like uh, sophisticated, wor- kind of worldly. Uh, their persona, it, you know, represents that kind of character. Uh, they, are, but there's always a kind of a slightly louche side to them. Uh, there might be a dandy, but with a kind of a a kind of. Um, corrupt kind of like um, or, or a, a corrupt side or a, a kind of sexually ambivalent side or, or even sexually a, a dangerous kind of uh, side and um, yeah and just uh, kind of like a, a maybe a bit of a world weariness as well mm-hmm. um, yeah Mifuni's a different category he's just like you know pure masculine macho energy and yes um, yeah i saw recently um they had a series on the criterion app that was japanese noir and um i'm trying to remember then it was the first mifune performance and it's a kurosawa film where he befriends a doctor he's like a gangster oh yeah the drunken angel drunken angel yeah and yeah and as soon as he walks on screen it's just this guy is a movie star i mean it's unbelievable yeah well i'm actually reading the big thick book now i'm trying to get through it um just because i can barely read anymore but it's the emperor and the wolf it's the biography um by story galbraith of mifuni and um and kurosawa oh wow it's like a double biography and it starts back from, you know, the, the studios in Japan and, and how, how they both uh, rose to fame and everything. Uh, yeah. It's pretty amazing. I mean, he didn't even want to be an actor. Mifune. He wanted to, he wanted to be more like uh, behind the scenes, um, maybe like a, a <clears throat> I think he wanted to be more in the camera department hmm. and um and he gradually, they worked on this one film, I forget the name of it, that uh, uh, I'm not sure Mifuni directed it, but 
maybe produced it, but uh, it was set on a mountain. And so it was a lot of like um, dangerous stunts, like up in a, a snow capped mountain. And, and he was basically carrying all the equipment and, and uh, kind of, um, uh, even though he was in it, I think he, he was moving, he was like carrying all the equipment and kind of carrying the whole production on his back. And he had so much energy and he was fearless. And yeah, he's, he, he's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few, I, I, I was that when I saw that first moment of Mifune on screen, sort of his first screen moment, it reminded me, I, I was never, a, I was never really a, um, a John Wayne guy for, you know, I, it was always something I associated with. Don't tell my father that. Well, exactly. I, I associate with my, this is like my parents' pictures or. My father, I, my, my fa- parents have a John Wayne Christmas decoration on their Christmas tree. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to get there. We're going to get to that. Um, but uh, the first time I saw Stagecoach, and when he turns around and gets that first close-up, I'm like, it's, oh, undeni- it's undeniable. Oh. This guy is like an incredible movie star. Yeah, it's a great performance. I mean, it is. It's a great movie. Yeah, I mean, I've turned a massive corner. I think that happens with a lot of things. Well, you, can, I mean, it's Ford. I mean, you know, you any any Ford movie is... is uh, going to be pretty great and and uh, he was in so many of them so yeah yeah uh, yeah and, and then i was watching some mizuguchi movies too oh yeah when i took the japanese cinema course with robin wood we did he did four masters so he did mizuguchi ozu kurosawa and um and uh oshima and um mm-hmm. and so uh, i hadn't watched a mizuguchi film literally in like 30 years so i watched i re-watched you've got some and um <clears throat> and sense of the bailiff and oh, yeah. i mean you know they're just they're just uh, i don't understand why you know that kind of cinema isn't kind of made anymore it's just uh it, it's so like um it's so epic and like kind of but like really emotional and and um kind of spiritual you know yeah for sure and it's it has this sort of quiet confidence to it that it it treats its audience with a real respect that yeah they can hang and 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 watch and enjoy these these films he's yeah he's incredible um so you grew up in southampton ontario well i grew up in a farm on a farm. I was okay. born in Southampton, but I grew up in a farm. Um, so we were kind of in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was your, I guess, why don't we start? What's the, do you have a, do you have a strong memory, like a, a first strong film memory? Um, something that, it doesn't have to be like the first film you saw, but just something that really, the first time it stuck with you or, or something that really stands out from when you were a young man? Well, Bambi. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of course, <laughs> any, any Disney, any of those great Disney movies, they would, whether they, you know, they would reissue them all the time. So I don't know when the first time I, I saw them, but, uh, you know, I was really, I was just, it was funny. I was just posting on, I, uh, on Facebook, uh, I do a lot of movie posts on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and and then I kind of uh, forgot that I, really my last two feature films, excluding my porn feature, um, 
were based on Haley Mills movies. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so The Misandrist was loosely based on The Trouble with Angels, which direct, directed by Ida Lupino, which yeah. wasn't a, it, which wasn't a Disney movie, but yeah. I, it had a. I loved it as a kid, like so much, and um, and Saint Narcisse is kind of a loose remake of The Parent Trap. You know, that's Haley funny. Mills. I did that did not occur to me, <laughs> but that's really funny. <laughs> so yeah, those those movies had had a big impact on me. And then, well, uh, so do you mean like from early childhood? Because yeah, yeah, I was kind of just wondering yeah. what, it's, what it was like at at home, like when you. When My parents were huge cinephiles. It was weird. Great. They're they're both farmers, and uh, my mother was a house housewife, but she helped like equally on with the farm work. And they both only had grade eight, grade eight education, but they were huge cinephiles, and they'd take us to the movies all the time. Uh, the closest town was like thirteen miles away, so they'd drive us um, to the cinema on the weekends, and then in the summer we go to the drive-in every every week. And um, so there was that, and then all the uh the other window to the world for me on this isolated scary farm was like uh the late late show you know um mm -hmm. and um but in terms of the drive <laughs> they used to take us they kind of really didn't pay attention sometimes to what uh movies were playing that it was just <laughs> the the act the fun of going to the drive-in mm -hmm. so i'd see these like lurid like really spooky you know they used to play them like i guess in the late 60s 70s uh that were from a previous era so like you know picture mummy dead and uh, <laughs> you know which i'd see when i was like five or something or um or uh the woman that would not die or rasputin the mad monk wow. uh you know um kind of terrifying movies for a kid yeah, were you? How did you? Did you? Were you terrified of them? Did they? Yeah, yeah. I'd be, we'd be. I'd be in the back seat. Uh, there was. A, I have two older siblings and two younger siblings. So I, I started going out with the old, going to the drive-in with the older ones, and then they outgrew it, and then I'd start going with the younger ones. Um, and but I, we'd be in the back seat, like uh, peeking over the the, uh, <laughs> the 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 my our parents' heads and you know, diving down if it was too intense. Uh, but uh, there was, um, oh, uh, Fiend Without a Face. Oh, yeah. Uh, such a great movie, but yeah. terrifying. I mean, that image of the monster going across the carpet and you could just see his big, like, footprints. Yeah, can um, you, for, uh, like, for, for listeners who might not know it, can you explain Fiend Without a Face a little bit? Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah, it it's like, it, it's, it's a doctor, it's a, a scientist who is uh, experimenting with uh, the brain and um, it's kind of like a, he, he develops some kind of um, psychic creature that, it, it, that it really basically rips the spinal cord and cord and brain out of the, out of people. <laughs> and they kind of crawl around so it's like a brain dragging its spine or kind of the, some of the creatures in it yeah, yeah. um i can't re remember uh and i remember that scene where the walking across the, they're invisible except but then they manifest sometimes 
so that you can see them. I don't know. That's that's basically all. I yeah, yeah. That's it. Is it is a really creepy film? So or the woman, the woman who, the brain that would not die too. Oh really. yeah, yeah. Which which I kind of remade as Ulrika's brain. I made a experimental film uh, like in two thousand, uh, like about five years ago, um, which hasn't been seen that much, but uh, it's it's about. It's kind of a cross between they saved Hitler's brain and the 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 brain that would not die. So it's Arika Minoff, this uh, this left, yeah, kind of leftist radical mm-hmm. uh, doctor, female doctor, um, has Arika's brain because there's a whole. Weirdly, it's like a lot of it was based on reality, like the brains of uh, the four main members of the Bader Meinhof gang, the Red Army faction, the German German terrorists of the 70s, disappeared at one point after they were murdered at Stamheim prison. Murdered, I mean, uh, there's some contention about that, but uh, Mm -hmm. um, their brains were at Heidelberg University in some lab and they disappeared. And, um, And then they were found again later, but uh, and then they were buried, separated from the bodies under like huge slabs of, of concrete, like they poured concrete in the grave so that people wouldn't defile huh. it and to make wow. sure that they were such a kind of like, um, they were kind of like these terrorist um, figures of, of like monsters in the consciousness of the Germans. So they, uh, well, I mean, half of the Germans supported them, but yes. Um, but uh, they they wanted to make sure that they weren't uh, they didn't come back from the grave I guess and um, anyway in my version uh, Ulrika's brain is it, she she somehow saves it so she is trying to translate it find a dead body body a, a la the brain that would not die when he goes to you know burlesque bars and tries to find the perfect body for his fiance's mm-hmm. uh, brain which has been decapitated in a in a car accident and so she tries to find the perfect female body for Ulrika's brain and meanwhile her arch rival Detlev Schlesinger is uh has the ashes of Kuhn uh Michelle Kuhnen who was the leader of uh the of the neo-nazi movement in the late 90s and he was gay and he died of AIDS but um but his ashes were floating around and no one no one wanted to bury him in consecrated ground and so he has the ashes of uh, Kunanit's brain, and he wants, and he tries to um, bring him back from the dead using um, kind of um, satanic rituals or arcane rituals, so that you have the the extreme left and the extreme extreme right, each with their Frankenstein monster, like pitted against each other. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I guess there is a there is a real presence for that because the like, eyes without a face is this kind of a similar. Where the daughter's disfigured. Yeah. 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 And I saw that, uh, you know, a lot of the, at the drive-in, we'd see previews for movies too. So I saw the preview for that. I saw the preview for Night of the Living Dead, which really right. terrified me I bet. Like, to death. I like bet. when I was 10 or something. And, um, yeah. So that was my, and then a bit later, like when I was say more like 12, 13, 14, uh, Canadian TV was pretty raunchy back then like CBC would show movies with, uh, with full frontal nudity. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was really weird. Um, it was partly, I think because of the, you know, the liberation, sexual 
kind of sexual revolution and things kind of were a bit looser and mm-hmm. um uh there'd be a, you know there was mainstream movies uh that were full frontal nudity was more common in the in the, in the 70s yeah um in mainstream film and um but anyway i saw the that cold day in the park the robert altman movie uh, i wanted to talk to you about that that when that I, is like it seems like a very that that film is it seen more in Canada than it is in the states? Do you think? Well, it was shot in Vancouver. Yeah, it was a Canadian um, production. Yeah, but and I don't know why it's not more widely known. Because um, even or, or seen, it could be it could be a rights issue or something. But even with a film like like Images, has had a bit of a renaissance here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of I I, I, I I think I love that movie. Yeah, amazing. Um, and I think it's in part fact, of that, that same. That was era. a big. That that's a big influence on uh, my new movie, Sanerties, as well. And in fact, we use a lot of John Williams' uh, soundtrack music from Images as as temp really? music in uh, when we were editing Sanerties. I mean, there. That's also a whole. That's its own kind of genre in a way as well. Like films, like Secret Ceremony. Um, uh, where it's yeah. sort of these misappropriated identities and it's uh yeah mm-hmm. it's, it is kind of its own its well own thing de, in a way de palma was really you know uh, and also incest like a lot of uh yeah. weird incestuous movies so when i saw uh that called day in the park which i remake as my first feature which was shot on super eight for fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars but um uh well it was actually shot for two thousand dollars and the blue the blow up to sixteen call uh, cost uh, thirteen thousand. So, fifteen. <laughs> um, and even then, I was uh, accused of selling out for making a fifteen thousand. Of course. Movie. Well, you were a punk, so that's, that's by the, the by the punks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but when I saw that called in the park on TV, I was like, you know, which is the story of the spinster who finds like a kind of a, a hustler in the park and keeps him locked up in her guest bedroom and then hires a prostitute to keep him satisfied and then runs in at the very end runs into the room with a knife and stabs a prostitute in a fit of jealous rage so i mean uh when i saw that it must have been i don't know like um 12 or 13 or something and i thought i thought wow this must be what pornography is i remember (laughs) thinking that (laughs) because it was so twisted and psychosexual you know and um, the other movie that had a huge imp- uh, impression like that for me that I saw on TV, which I reference in uh, Saint Narcisse, is Paul Almond's uh, "The Act of the Heart" with um, with Jean Vujold and Donald Sutherland. Can you talk a little bit about Paul Almond? Yeah, so Paul Almond was a Anglo um, Quebec uh, director. I don't know a lot about him, but he was married to uh, Genevieve Bujold, and they made three uh, a trilogy together, three films um, that she starred in. Isabel, which I think is 68. Eight, think. Yeah. Um, that, uh, the Act of the Heart, which was 1970, and Journey, which is 1972, I think. And, um, they're all like kind of movies again with this weird psychosexual dimension to them uh there's kind of incestuous implications in isabel and 
Um, it's been a while since I've seen Journey, so I can't really talk to, about it too much. But it's set in the woods, and it's like um, there's always some family secrets or skeletons in the closet. And mm-hmm. but the act of the heart. I mean, Donald Sutherland plays a Catholic priest who, and there's Genevieve Bujold is like a young woman who's who ba- who's babysitting. Uh, or who's the nanny for a young boy who plays hockey and there's a whole subplot with him playing hockey and he has a bad accident. But uh, she, anyway, um, Donald Sutherland and Genevieve Bujold end up fucking on the altar of his church. <laughs> and then at the end of the film, she goes to the park with a can of gasoline, pours the gasoline over herself and sets herself on fire. I mean, that's as, as the end credits are rolling. Amazing. Mind mind you. So <laughs> when I saw that on TV, I was like, what is going on? Like religion, like it's so Baroque and weird and perverse and it makes people do insane sexual things. And, you know, uh, it really, it really threw me for a loop. I was like, And how old were you? You were, you, you were like 13. I, I, that film was, came out in 70. So it was on TV. So I, I would have been like, I don't know, maybe, um, 10 or 11 or wow so it's those kinds of films that really um you know uh obviously made me into a complete you know freak (laughs) (laughs) a cinema freak so did you and were you watching a lot of films with your parents at home too was there stuff on tv that you're i know you're saying your 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 parents were obsessed with john wayne or your dad was obsessed with uh yeah mostly my dad uh he, he was also a hunter and, and a trapper um mm. and so there was a lot of uh you know crazy violence going on on the farm there was like sex and violence and castration all over the place you know and i would see him shooting and trapping animals all the time and hounds like ripping apart you know animals coons raccoons and mm-hmm. um you know uh pig we'd be castrating pigs and i i was a, a sort of a observer of all this stuff I, I i was just like a little i was a little kind of sissy with like orange ringlets and um <laughs> i so I, did, I would never shoot anything but i love going on the hunts and everything and um, so that informed a lot of my later work as well. Um, and seeing my father had a bull and a, and a boar, so they'd be fucking the, 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 the livestock, like in the fields all the time. So, uh, I'd get a eye full of that, you know, and <laughs> it was, it was quite, um, informative and, and, and formative, uh, but uh, on TV, the TV, it was weird. The TV would go on in my in our house when I was growing up, like in the morning, and it would be the last thing that went off at night. You know, right. it was just on all the time. So not only did I see all the great TV shows of, of that era, but um, too much. I mean, watched, I did my homework in front of the TV and... And just watch way too much of it, but uh, but it was the, the it was the uh, the late night, and and then you know um, they would replay um, old classic Hollywood movies. But one night I was watching the Late Show, and 
this movie came on. Uh, I don't know. I was a teenager, and uh, it was Jack Nicholson, and there was like this long. The movie came on with no with no credits or anything, and there was this long, long sequence of him telling an anecdote in close up that lasted about seven or eight or nine minutes. And I was so mesmerized and just didn't know what was going on. It's like, is this a movie? You know, there's no action. It's like, and it was like Bob Raffleson's The King of Marvel Gardens. Mm -hmm. And it just had, it just blew me away. It made me, it's probably the film that made me want to make films myself. Uh, Just because it was so um, out of the, outside the box and just, uh, um, I mean, you know, it's a pretty conventional uh, film now, looking back at it, but uh, in some ways, but, uh, and also weird psychosexual things going on in that movie with Bruce Dern is actually uh, having sex with, um, you know, Ellen Burstyn, who's like a a hooker, basically, (laughs) and her stepdaughter. I mean, in the original script, uh, which is actually, I think it's by... Is it by, uh, what's her name, Carol uh, Eastman, who did Five Easy Pieces? I'm not sure. Maybe it's not. I think it, this says, let's see, let me, no, it's Jacob Jacob Brackman. Um, Okay. Yeah. But anyway, uh, originally they wanted it to be, them to be mother and daughter, uh, Ellen Mm. Briston and and the, the girl who plays her daughter. Uh, and Bruce Dern is supposed to be having not only fucking both of them, but having three ways with them, you know. So <laughs> that was another one that was eye-opening for me. Yeah, I can imagine. So, and also Jack Nicholson played like a, a writer who was like totally had a block, and he was really uh, kind of a tortured soul and, and very. Uh, isolated and all that stuff. So I really related to his character. When you left the farm to go, did you leave for university? Was that for Mm -hmm. when you went to York? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, How did your movie viewing habits change? Oh, well, I mean, I was a, a, a I went into the uh, film department. So my plan since I was like 13 or 14, I wanted to be a film critic and that was my plan. And so, um, I, but I, uh, I was encouraged to join to, or I think film studies students had, had to take, uh, the first two years they had to take production courses. And so, uh, the first year I took uh, 35 millimeter still photography and the second year we did super eight. And, um, so I, and then after the second year, if you went into third year production, you had to make your own 16 millimeter movies and you had to finance them yourselves, uh, yourself and mostly. And, and also I, I was a total technophobe, so I didn't think I could become a filmmaker. So I, I went into film theory and I ended up getting my master's degree in film uh, film theory, thought, uh, film and social pol- and political thought. Basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, but in terms of movie watching, you know, the first year I took uh, a survey course and, you know, of course this is all 
pre-internet, pre-VHS, you know, like yeah. really back now. And um, so it was, it was uh, amazing because I took this survey course um, where we watched two movies, I think every day. Wow. Um, or, or twice a week anyway, or three times a week. Um, and it was all the classics. It was all the classic Hollywood films and, um, and some European films. And, uh, so that was great. And then second year I met Robin Wood and, um, I took a genre cinema course with him and then that just changed my whole life. I mean, he was just such a, um, such a, a genius, but, uh, he had such an insane um, love of cinema and appreciation of cinema. Plus, I was still basically in the closet, like uh, I hadn't figured out my sexuality. And here he was this, you know, gay liberationist, Marxist, mm -hmm. feminist critic, and who had recently wrote this seminal article called The Responsibility of the Gay Art Critic. And, um, he had been married and with, you know, three children who were pretty much grown up when he came out of the closet and, and left his family and, you know, um, started having relationships with men. Anyway, he had, you know, and he had written books on uh, monograms already before he came out on um, Hitchcock and Chabral and Howard Hawks and Arthur Penn, and, you know, so he was insanely um knowledgeable and had this passion for cinema and, and uh so i took courses with him uh and so that would be uh, and in grad school i was his projectionist as well for his grad oh, courses nice. so so i get to watch all the, sh the films that he showed his grad students and meanwhile you know toronto at the time was this incredible cinephile city so you know, and it was in the 80s, I got to go to all the great review cinemas when they were all kind of aligned. And uh, there was the New Yorker and the fine arts cinema. And, um, you know, besides all the ones like the review and uh, the the Paradise and the um, the Roxy and the the Fox and, you know, all of them. And, and then you also had the great big old, um, you know, uh, old style classic movie palaces that were still going. Uh, and I got to, uh, to experience them before they were all, um, gutted, you know? So, um, I mean, Toronto developed the, uh, one of the biggest, top five film festivals in the world uh, for a reason, you know, because it was yeah. a super uh, cinephile town. Yeah. All that, you know, the, uh, was it the New Yorker and the fine arts and there was another one I can't remember, but they, they would all play like first run. They would play, be playing all the, and you know, there was all the great waves of cinema happening. There was the German new wave in the seventies and, mm -hmm. and, the Nouveau Vague and, but also, uh, there was a lot of films from Eastern Europe and, um, and, um, the UK and they'd all be playing, they'd all play, uh, simultaneously. They released them here when they released them in, in Europe.
Wow. So um, we, we, as film students, you know, we'd all go down uh, and make a point of uh, seeing all the, the latest release of Nicholas Rogue or, yeah. or, uh, or Herzog or, um, or uh, Vim Vendors or whoever it was. Was there, a, was there a critic that you looked to at the time that kind of helped um, you guide your taste or sort of find the things you wanted to see since there was so much going on at the time? Or were you just kind of, you know, going around with your friends and just checking out whatever was there? Well, I was, a, you know, I was uh, an academic, uh, studying as an academic, so I was aware of all the, the critics. and uh, But I did read... You know, I I was a Kaleite. I would sure. read, even though she was enraging. You know, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. But, but I I I even read all the her compilations. You know, like sh- mm-hmm. shoot shoot bang bang or whatever it's called, kiss like. kiss bang bang, yeah. kiss kiss bang bang, and yeah, the other ones. Um, I lost it at the movies, and yeah, uh, um, but I would also read Rex Reed. You know, yeah, <laughs> his yeah. books, um, uh. Yeah, I mean, I read The Village Voice, so I read Andrew Saris, and and um, and in fact, it was such a thrill for me when I when No Skin Off My Ass, my first, you know, little, nothing, nothing, no budget, you know, movie that got blown up to sixteen and ended up being shown around the world, uh, in like ninety one, ninety one, when it opened in New York, um, The Village Voice was still, you know. The Village Voice. It was still a serious uh, yeah. leftist, left-wing, radical kind of uh, paper, and um, uh, both. Uh, who was it? It was Manola Dargis gave it a like rave review, and um, who of course now writes for the New York Times, and um, and also Amy. Uh, what was her name? Uh, another female critic at the time. Uh, and also, uh, Saris loved it. Amazing. And so, uh, I was like, um, he called it a, I, I even remember what he called it. He called it a blunt demystific, a blunt demystificatory melodrama. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? This is amazing. Like these, this, these critics have been, re- you know, reading, uh, did, so. did you draw a lot of influence from, Maybe not directly necessarily, but um, from the sort of fifties melodramas, forties, fifties melodramas. Are you a fan of of those? Oh, no, insane, insanely. Yeah. I, I just yeah. one of those. You know, I was talking about how on TCM, one of the the kind of traps is that you can watch the same film over and over again. Of course, and yeah. I just you know certain films come on and. I just can't not watch them. Like I, I really have to hide the remote, you know, because, <laughs> um, and it was just on the other night, uh, imitation of life, you know? Oh God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, I just got sucked in. I, you know, once again, I've seen it like 30 yeah. times and, um, you know, that the ending and with the, the funeral and, um, and just the campiness of it. Like, Oh, I can't remember the name, but the, the direct, the Italian director who gives her her big, you know, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> her big comeback role. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love, I love uh, Cirque, of course, and, and yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, and in fact, 
Well, when we get to my special question, I'll have something to say about that. Okay, cool. About, mel- about melodrama. Oh, okay, good, good. Um, <laughs> so a lot of my movies kind of actually reference these classic melodramas. So, for example, Hustler White, yeah. uh, my movie I made in 1996 references uh, Sunset Boulevard and whatever happened to Baby Jane. So it kind of, and it also takes elements of Andy Warhol's like Flash and um, and kind of, and and Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon and kind of mashes them all together. But um, so it's, it's those uh, Hollywood melodramas that really um, were a big influence on me in terms of the you know the, the the gay the camp aspect and the queer uh, aspect and quite often i queer them so you know sunset boulevard is is uh at least on the surface about you know a gigolo a straight gigolo william holden mm-hmm. uh and his uh who's being kept by an older woman gloria swanson and in my version of course you know i would uh I, I make it into a, a, a gay relationship. Um, so I, I played the Gloria Swanson character and Tony Ward played the uh, William Holden character. So, you know, it's uh, it's kind of like, um, it's really a really very basic um, uh, part of my queer identity is these, these classic um, uh, melodramas that Hollywood melodramas that had a, a homosexual subtext, which is what Robin would talk a lot about when he um, when he analyzed uh, classical Hollywood films. The, the, this kind of queer subtext that ran through uh, Hollywood movies. Have you? Are you? Have you seen *Lever to Heaven*? I would imagine that John Stahl, Gene yeah. Tierney. Yeah, I was uh, before I got on this call. I was just talking to a, a friend, and and he said. Uh, it's like there's this film that I remember where a woman watches a handicapped boy drown <laughs> with with no emotion. Yes, like, almost with, with amazing sunglasses on. And, yeah. She's cold. She's cold in that movie. Yeah, she is cold. And then, oh, of boy. course, John Gavin from um, from um, Imitation of Life. No, yes. no, it's not. Sorry, no, it's not John Gavin. It's um, Gene Tierney. No. No, Gene Tierney. I mean, is, Cornell Wilde. Cor- Cor- Cornell Wilde. Yeah. Cornell Wilde. Price is in there. Cornell Wilde looks amazing in that. Yes. In that movie. Yeah. Well, he's got to be. He's got to be that that guy that she becomes yeah. so obsessed with. Yeah. No, that's uh, a great movie. Yeah. It is. Um, you know, based on your work and and what I know of you, I can I can see that I can tell you're a, a Freud guy. Um, oh. interested in Freud. <laughs> 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 um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. Freud on film, if there uh, any depictions of Freud on film, either sort of uh, literally or sort of more figuratively, um, that you that you like or are interested in. Uh, well, I love the John Huston. Do you? I want. I was hoping yeah. you'd bring it up. Yeah. So I talk mean, about that. Um, talk about it a little bit. Well, it's again. It's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah. Well, I've seen I've seen it within the last five or seven years. Um, you know, Susanna York, who I one of my favorite actresses, but um, uh, of course, it's post uh, car accident, uh, Montgomery Clift. So mm-hmm. he's playing Freud, and he's kind of like this tortured performance. Um, but really, that film, as I recall, is about his theory of um, child sexuality. 
and uh, or am I getting it mixed up with the Cronenberg movie? Um, uh, I think I I think it really does. I think it does as well. Um, yeah, I think I think it does. I think it addresses it. Um, yeah. Uh, what's the Cronenberg film? The uh, most dangerous method. Right? Is that what it's called? No. Or, or a but, dangerous but, method? A dangerous method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think it's the John Huston one. I mean, John Huston is insane. He's one of my favorite directors too. Really, um, I'm a huge. You know, I love Night of the Iguana and Yes, Treasure yes. Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Fat City, of course. And, yeah. Um, and and so many more. I mean, he, he was so prolific. Uh, um, the Betty Davis one, um, um, which was his second movie, uh, not. Um, uh, to each her, not to each her own, but uh, anyway, uh, the one with Olivia Havlin and and um, and Betty. Oh, Davis in this our in this our life. In this our life, yeah, yeah. where she plays uh, a complete another like insane character who just doesn't uh, have any empathy or a complete sociopath. Um, I mean, it's amazing how many like she she mows she she. she she mows over a a mother and child with her car and and is like out partying the next you know that <laughs> that night she doesn't give a shit it's relatable and then her and then her grandfather charles coburn is like is like on the verge of dying with uh you know because he has uh of a heart attack and and uh and he finds out that that she's murdered someone and and she goes oh what does it matter to you? She wants him to take the rap for her. And she's like, you've already lived your life. <laughs> Why do you care? <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, and Moby Dick. I love John Houston's version yeah. of Moby, Moby Dick. I don't yeah, know why fantastic. everyone. Uh, yeah. Um, but. Uh, um, oh, sorry. What were we talking about? Um, Freud. The, the Freud. His Freud. Film. Oh, Freud. Yeah. Yeah. Freud. yeah. I think it is. Uh, I think it is because that was the um, the main sort of one of the main like controversial theories that he had among among you know so many that really put people uh, drove people crazy and could, they couldn't wrap their mind around it. I mean, he was talking about you know infantile sexual development basically, and uh, so and object relations. So the you know how the infant uh relates to the to the breast and to the father's penis and all that stuff um so yeah that movie is like it's so kind of um epic and uh, like a lot of john Huston's films and kind of um really gets into it, it's such an intelligent film about such a complex subject you know which which uh, is rare these days in Hollywood. Yeah. But yeah. I would say in terms of Freudian, I was thinking for some reason, uh, the movie that came up was um, Bad Timing, Nicholas Rogue's Bad Timing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I because, didn't even think you of know, it. Which is set in Vienna. And there's a scene actually where he and Teresa, R. Garfunkel Funkel and Teresa Russell go to see the Freudian, Freud Museum where his original couch uh, mm-hmm. is, Freud's couch. Or that his patients lied, laid on, uh, and they actually make out on Freud's couch in, in the film. 
like the, I, they don't have sex, but they he she grabs him and pulls him under the couch, and they're kind of like half making out. And apparently, they did it without permission, and they got in trouble for it or something. But wow. and I visited that I visited that museum as well uh, uh, in Vienna. But uh, um, and, but just the fact that you know he's a psychoanalyst and and the kind of um, you know uh, who's he's a uh, uh, insane, like paranoid, obsess, obsessive, compulsive, kind of like psychoanalyst. So he, he's really should be his own patient, you know. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, that's a film about psychoanalysis. But you know, every that's what I loved about about Hollywood in the '30s and '40s, especially. Everyone was seeing not a shrink, not a not a uh, psychotherapist, but a psychoanalyst. psychoanalyst yeah. <laughs> and so one of my favorite Ernst Lubitsch movies is um, um, with, with uh, Merle Oberon and Melvin Douglas. Um, uh, what's it called? Um, anyway, it's uh, he and, uh, and um, oh God. Okay. My brain's starting to go. Um <laughs> Uh, uh, anyway, uh, she she uh, she plays. Oh, is it a, a, a note? Um, not Nanatska. No, it's oh. uh, uh, Melvin Douglas plays a husband who um, and uh, who's just like an insurance man or something. And Merle Oberon meets um, uh, who, oh, who's the actor who played. Um, the Penguin on the Batman TV series, uh, Burgess oh, Meredith. Yeah, so, so Burgess Meredith plays a concert pianist anarchist, and like he's a full fledged political anarchist, but he's a concert pianist. And she meets him in her psychoanalyst oh, and uh, waiting that room. That uncertain feeling. That uncertain feeling. I love this movie. And the whole theory of the movie is that you should never get to know your spouse too well. There should always be some kind of <laughs> you know, which is exactly the opposite of what everyone does now, where it's like this whole thing where you're supposed to be, you know, um, completely open with one another and, and, you know, sharing your lives together and helicoptering the kids and everything. It's like, no, the kids should be seen and not heard and you should not get to, you know, <laughs> the, the, the father, should, the, the husband should have the, his den and whatever, you know, it's like, um, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I'm not, I'm not a Jordan Peterson uh, you know, <laughs> follower, but uh, <laughs> um, it'd be but, a big uh, reveal if you were. Though, <laughs> <laughs> well, he has a few interesting things to say, but um, sure, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but the, the just the sophistication of it, well, of Lubitsch in general. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I was going through Lu TCM had a, a Lubitsch. Uh, the, uh, a spotlight on Lubitsch recently, so I was watching some of those uh, his old films as well. But um, it's just so sophisticated, and the fact that they're like seeing psychoanalysts and um, really getting into the uh, uh, and talking about Freud and getting into the, these theories of psychoanalytic uh, theories um, in mainstream film was was amazing. You know? Uh, the average viewer must have been, you know, pretty sophisticated to be, uh, yeah, 
to be watching these films. It was also sort of a hot hot button topic of the day too, right? It was. Uh... Well, sure, because I mean, it wasn't that you know the '30s. I mean, yeah. Freud was writing all his um, sort of works at the turn of the century, his influential works. So, yeah, for sure. Um. Well, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I don't want to keep you forever. But um, um, oh, and the wait, well, I'll bring up one more Marnie. Please. I mean Hitchcock's oh, Marnie. Yeah, yeah, which is to, so based on psychoanalytic jargon, and um, uh, in fact, I think the didn't Gavin Lambert write the the screenplay, and um, who's gay, and um, you know, it's it's even in the di- it's, you know embedded in the dialogue as a kind of joke, like when. When Tippi Hedren says to Sean Connery, uh, "You Freud, me Jane," you know, and um, <laughs> and she's uh, um, he's sort of trying to psycho psych, psychoanalyze her throughout the movie, and and she has this deep seated, uh, you know, a lot of Hitchcock movies there is some kind of deep seated trauma, yeah. usually having to do with some kind of sexual angle. Like in that case, her mother was being raped by a sailor. Her, her mother, who was a prostitute, was being raped by a sailor, and she, and she. Um, and she killed him as a, as a, as a little girl, you know, uh, with a poker or whatever. So, um, it's, uh, um, yeah, all that psychosexual stuff in Freud, uh, in Hitchcock is all very Freudian. As well. Yeah. I mean, and, he, and, he, and of course, um, you know, um, the spellbound uh, spellbound. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, you know, vertigo is, uh, and vertigo. In fact, I did my master's thesis was a shot by shot analysis of vertigo. It's wow. Vertigo. And um, again, this was before VHS. So I had to watch it over and over again on a projector. And I was doing, you know, an, a, a really deep analysis of the mise en scène of how masculinity and femininity were inscribed in the formal kind of compositions of the film. And um uh, so I would, they had just invented a kind of projector where you could stop a frame in the gate and, mm. and see it like projected on the f- screen without it burning through the film. Right. It's called a stop, stop, stop motion projector or something. So that's how I uh, kind of uh, wrote my thesis. Amazing. Yeah. Is, it, is it published? It was never published, I don't think. There's probably like five dusty copies in the York University <laughs> Library. All right. Well, good. I'm in, I'm in New York. Um, so I guess we should, we'll, we'll do our uh, little closeout questions here. One I'm, I'm, I think uh, I'm, I'm curious about your answer for is, uh, so I've been asking all my guests, uh, who, they, who do they prefer, Tony or Ridley Scott? Right. Well, I mean, you know, at first glance, it's kind of like a no-brainer, like yeah. you know, you'd think Ridley. But um, and in fact, just as an anecdote, one a really good friend of mine who was a um, pro- a lesbian production assistant on Hustler White when she was mm-hmm. seventeen um, is now editing some uh, Ridley Scott films. Oh wow! And, and he's he also transitioned. He's he's uh, a trans man. So he's transitioned to male and he was one of the, um, uh, what's the film? I think he, he, he edited the, the Moses film. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
anyway, he worked us up. He started out as a assist, assistant assistant and worked his way up to uh, being one of his main editors. Amazing. Anyway, that's just a, a side note. But, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, basically, I, I have to think about four movies. I think of, you know, obviously with Tony Scott, you think of The Hunger and yep. True Romance. Mm-hmm. And with Ridley Scott, the two main ones I would think of would be Alien and Someone to Watch Over Me. And uh-huh. maybe, and maybe, um, you know, uh, well, no, I can't even remember which one did it. The, the one with Tim Curry, um, as the monster, uh, Oh, legend, legend, right. That's Ridley. That was, that's Ridley. Ridley. Right. So, uh, and of course, Tony Scott started out directing all those amazing Chanel number five commercials. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh you know um but then when you look at ridley scott's imdb i mean yeah he hasn't made all that many great <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no no i can't say that he has but i mean i think a lot some of them are overrated like i have to say um uh i think gladiator is overrated mm-hmm. um uh what else I had I had him up here on IMDb. You didn't, but um, Blade Runner. Do you like Blade Runner? Oh, oh yeah, of course. Sorry, okay. that's another one. Yeah, it's an absolute <laughs> masterpiece, and you know, um, and the new one sucks. But and um, uh, and I haven't seen some of uh, Tony Scott's films, though. I have to say, like Domino, I haven't seen, which I'm interested in because that's based on Harvey uh, Lawrence Harvey's daughter. Yes. And um, and I didn't see Unstoppable, did I? Oh, I did see Unstoppable. I mean, Unstoppable is no runaway train. That's all I have to say. But <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I would say I'd have to go because of Blade Runner, Alien, and uh, someone to watch over me. I'd have to say Ridley. Interesting. Yeah, I was wondering which way you'd go because uh, there's obviously a case to be made for both. And I think it kind of Tony, I was I was wondering if you'd lean towards Tony just because he has a bit more of um he's more of a genre guy to a certain mm-hmm. degree and a bit more um he gets into this, it's a bit more almost it's a bit more B movie-ish and a lot of his even the big ones with Denzel there are always these kind of there's never any pretense of it being more than the than the thing that it is necessarily um and you know he made the, that film revenge he made with kevin costner and anthony quinn which is i don't s- think i don't think oh, i saw you'd that like, one. you'd like it you'd yeah like it. it's a well i i i like beverly movie. hills cop too i mean yeah 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 you know totally. that was that was a good movie um uh but then you know there's a lot of his I don't like, like yeah. the, the, the Last Boy Scout, Crimson Tide, Enemy of the State. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a lot know. of his. So that's, he made some real pot boilers as well. Top Gun, I'm not a fan of. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> not a fan of Top Gun. That's a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, cool. Um, so now D- the last, despite thing. it, despite its gayness, it's oh, obvious. it's incredibly gay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, 
Well, maybe you should do. Uh, maybe you should do a remake of that. You should use uh, I think they it. are. Oh, oh are they? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, isn't he doing? Yeah, Tom Cruise is doing his big. It's a sequel. He's doing a big sequel. They did have um, the, it went, on Twitter. It went around a, a couple years ago if they were to do a Top Gun sequel. Who's your dream director? And I, I submitted you. I thought you'd do a great job. Ah, uh, well, maybe I should watch Top Gun again. I do like, <laughs> I do like Kelly McGillis. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's not a, it's not a. I think technically it's a, a kind of a feat of filmmaking, but it's not a great film by any right. metric. Um, yeah. So, on that note, speaking of a film like Top Gun, uh, a film that is generally beloved by the world at large that you can just loathe. Well, I thought about this. I was going to say um, La La Land because because I truly do loathe that film. But then I thought, well, is it that really, is it really that beloved? (laughs) I mean, so then instead, instead I chose Whiplash. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd go for the jugular there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I loathe that film. Uh, you know, I, I I it it feels like it's directed by a computer. It's like, um, it, 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 I hate the J.K. Rowland's character. No, J.K. Rowland's J.K. Yeah, Rowland's yeah. J.K. Rowland's would have been better in that role. She would have been great. No, yeah, yeah. J.K. Simmons, <clears throat> I hate that character with a passion. I Do mean, you like him in general. Do you like him as an actor? Um. He's just been doing all those insurance commercials. That's all I can think of. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Um, We are farmers. (laughs) Um, So uh, I just, I have a pet peeve about also this new crop of actors uh, like Miles Teller and and Ansel Elgort. What's his name? Mm -hmm. Ansel 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 Elgort. Yeah. And and there's a few others. Um, I just don't find them sexy. Yeah, I, yeah they're, I, they're they're a bit they're kind of duds. I think they uh, they are. I mean, I I just don't get the appeal. Uh, they're they're kind of they seem like really they seem like frat boys to me. Kind of um, yeah. there's there's you know they get they 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 will make like good choices. Uh, you know. Uh, and play characters with with an edge, but but I just uh, I I just don't find them they have any sex appeal or for me. But anyway, so Miles Teller, I'm not crazy about. You know, of course he learned to play the drums, blah blah blah, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know that scene where he's like, you know, pushing himself so hard, and he's driving the car, and he has the car accident, and then he goes and. Uh, you know, he's trying to play the the drums and he drops the bloody drumstick. And uh, it, it's just so, it's overwrought and it's fascist. And it's, it's I'll, I'll use a term, I'll borrow a term that Godard used to describe Clute, the movie Clute. He said it's okay. casually, casually fascist. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would say. Uh, yeah, that we're Why did he think it, Clint I, was I, casually fascist? <laughs> well, it's a long story. Come on, I mean, he okay. had just worked. He had just worked with uh, 
with uh, her in Tout yeah. Va Bien, right. and he and he and he made Letter to Jane, which okay, was a, okay, okay, kind, yeah, you know. So he thought she was like a posturing, like Hollywood. Um, so I think there was a bit of a personal uh, sure. vendetta there, but but also, right. you know, he just thought that that kind of entertainment. Uh, he was so deconstructivist and kind of postmodern at the time that I just th- thought he, he he probably felt that that kind of slick, uh, seamless uh, Hollywood narrative uh, film is 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 probably he probably thought it was literally fashion. Right. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. So why do you think Whiplash is casually fascist? Well, I just hate the whole philosophy of the film. And it just, you know, the fact that this excellence can only come from like, from sadism and and Mm -hmm. kind of like um, this kind of boot camp camp mentality. And it just fits into, it it was like a really kind of Trumpian film before before Trump, you know. Um, It was kind of foreshadowing that whole, uh, and, and it's kind of weirdly, you know, patriotic in that way, like mm-hmm. that idea of of uh, sacrificing everything for for some kind of uh, idea of of art, artistic excellence. Even though you know the, it, it treated art more like or music more like sports, you know, right? Um, yeah. And and I hate sports, so yeah, it just didn't appeal to me at all. And, and like I said, it, it just seemed to be directed so uh as if you know he he put it in some kind of like um deflavorizing machine or something and uh, <laughs> so, so you're not a big damien okay. chazelle fan <laughs> uh not not yet not yet okay, okay. Uh, we'll see what he comes up with next um no then he made that terrible space movie which was first such man. a bore. Oh, first man, yeah. I think I fell asleep. <laughs> um, <laughs> um oh and also Ridley Scott made Martian which is hard to forget. Oh, I walked out of the theater before he uh, escaped because uh, I wanted him to die in space. Oh, I just I wanted him characters. to die so bad. Yeah. I wanted um, uh Miles Heller to die in that car crash too. Yeah. <laughs> 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 anyway, so it, in lieu the, of whiplash, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, in lieu of whiplash, I was. What thinking would you? What would you recommend? Too. Yeah. Well, I I was thinking of ice castles mm. because um, I just I'd never seen it before, and it was just on TCM recently, and it's directed by a director I'd never I haven't heard of. I think his name is Fry Douglas Fry or something. Donald Bry. Right, sorry, Donald yeah. Rye. and he he was more of a TV uh, uh, movie director, uh, which I'm sure some of those are great because it's such a, a great melodrama. It harkens back to the great uh, Hollywood melodramas, but it's kind of the same story in a way as um, Whiplash. It's like you know this girl uh, played by Holly Lynn Johnson, that who is a real figure skater. And she's striving for excellence and she's being pushed by this kind of um, ruthless uh, uh, coach played by Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Warren, who's so great. She's in uh, Night Moves, uh, Arthur Penn's Night Moves. And um, 
you know, and of course, you know, Robbie Benson, the kind of 70s heartthrob, Jewish heartthrob. And, um, um, she, you know, she's, she is being pushed and, um, um, uh, but not to the point of like, you know, being tort, literally tortured and kind of like, um, uh, made into, a, a some kind of, uh, you know, uh, sacrifice on the altar of, um, of, you know, excellence and sports and, but, uh, she, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just such a, well, I mean, it's kind of can it's very campy now, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. kind of like, it's such a well-crafted melodrama and everyone is so committed. Like Tom Skerritt plays the, the father, her, her father and Colleen Dewhurst is in an amazing over the top performance, uh, as Robbie Benson's mother. And, um, you know, she, of course, you know, the story where she, she, um, she's just about to make it to the top of her game as a figure skater. And she, but it's kind of tearing her apart because, you know, there's, uh, she has a, uh, camera crew following her around almost like, you know, pre reality TV. Mm -hmm. Um, and she's being, she has all these temptations of, uh, stardom and everything and it's driving her crazy and she has an accident which could be like subconsciously she did on purpose where she almost goes blind or she's basically blind and then she makes her big comeback uh, and wins a big competition as a blind skater um, <laughs> I <love> but, <laughs> that's great I, but I, I don't know it's just it's just very well um, crafted and kind of emotional and these big big emotional moments and uh but it's also very tender and, you know, um, and emotional and there's some interesting psychology going on. And, um, I don't know. I just really thoroughly enjoyed it. So I would recommend that. That's a good, I know I'm watching it tonight. That's a great recommendation. It made me, um, it, as you were talking, it made me, reminded me of the Ida Lupino film, um, the tennis one, uh, hard, hard, fast, and beautiful. Have you seen that? Oh my god! You mean Ida Lupino directed it? Yes, or she's she directed it. Oh my god! You know, you know, I'm an enormous Ida Lupino fan. Like I you love don't her even too. know. You, you don't even know. Too. And in fact, I just watched uh, Ladies in Retirement the other night on TCM, oh, yeah. Yeah. which is one of my favorite movies of hers. But um, and then you know, of course, when she became a director and directed all these uh, kind of um, social issue movies, B movies that were way ahead of the time, and and Trouble of she directed the Trouble with Angels as well, which is such a great film. She's she's amazing. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, you know, and she worked with all the great directors. I mean, I know. She's... Um, and even her Twilight Zone episode is is one of my favorites. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Totally. So, uh, did, did, have you seen? So, have you seen Hard, Fast, and Beautiful? I haven't. I. I. Okay. I I'm. Gob gob smacked. I haven't even heard it before. Heard okay, of so it, it was a kind of it was it was kind of hard to see for a long time, and then Warner started releasing their archives here and there. Um, but it's 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 Claire Trevor, Sally Forrest. Um, she plays a, a a tennis star, and her mother is her manager, and her mother is a complete psycho and is manipulating people and 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 
trying to cl- get her daughter to the top of the tennis league. Wow. And she has well, a romance, a- and it's it's really it's I got a similar vibe, um, but it's a little more. It's definitely not. It doesn't have the softest touch. It's definitely like a, a pretty hard. Um, well, it sounds like album. almost a remake of The Hard Way. And yeah. The Hard Way is one of my favorite Lupino movies uh, as well. Which, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, she plays the stage sister who do, will do anything to to um, to get her uh, her sister Joan Leslie uh, um, uh, ahead in the in the uh, in the bra- in the yeah. you know as in the theater world. Uh, I love that movie's insane. She's it's it's so like feminist and and she's she gets so unjustly punished at the end, you know, just for um, for being really aggressive and um, career oriented in the man's world. Uh, oh well, I'm definitely going to check check that out. That's, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, a, yeah, that's yeah. a great recommendation. You'll love it. Yeah. So that concludes my interview with the great Bruce LeBruce. I want to thank Bruce for taking the time to do the interview. I was beyond tickled pink to talk to Bruce at all, let alone to hear him talk about films that he loves. I could do that forever and ever. I hope you had even the littlest, tiniest fraction of the amount of fun that I had during that conversation. And I hope you get to see that Ida Lupino film, Bruce. It's very good. And you guys at home also should watch that Ida Lupino film. You should watch all of her films. She's the best. And this is the conclusion of season one of 24-Hour Video, which begs the question, do podcasts need seasons? (laughs) And it begs the answer, no. (laughs) But I've seen other people do it, so, you know, what the hell. I'm going to do it, too. There's going to be a season two. It's been a full year of the show. It seems like fun stuff came out of there. I hope you guys enjoyed some of it. Um, I'm going to be doing one more little mini-sode before the year is over, uh, discussing the best things that I saw, new and old, this year, talking it over with a couple friends. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And season two will start in the new year. Uh, I've got some fun guests lined up, but please, please, please message me and let me know who you'd like to see on the pod. As always, you can find me on Instagram at 24hourvideo. That's all letters, no numbers, 24 video. Slide on into those DMs, baby. Wide open. Want to send a weird pic? Okay. You want to recommend a guest? That's a bit better. <laughs> so feel free to be in touch. Um, Of course, all the show notes are going to be up on jasongreen.org. You can find them there. Uh, Just click on the 24-hour video link on that page. As always, the music is written and performed by Nicholas Milheiser with a vocal stab from Nancy Wong. The editing is done by me, still by me, still by me, guys. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And we'll see you next year. I hope your new year is better than your last year, or at least approximately the same.